Phineas is making his voice heard. If you care about these issues enough, here is a direct and fast way to articulate that. Now, why are you voting? And how are you going to make sure your vote is counted? There are lots of questions this year, like how to register, vote by mail, and how to safely vote in person. That's why Facebook created the Voting Information Center. Get information from election authorities and experts at facebook.com slash voting info center. And don't miss the new podcast from iHeartRadio and Facebook called Why I'm Voting. iHeartRadio's Why I'm Voting Countdown to Election Day. Your vote is your voice. Place your left hand on the Bay of Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. It makes no sense. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Judge, you are the last line of reason in this case. Every one of us took an oath of office and we're sworn to uphold the Constitution. From Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. Here's my final thoughts on the Lake Oconee murders. First, going into this, I felt a deep sadness for the Dermans and for those who knew and loved them. Now that I've seen the case evidence, particularly the photographs, and now that I have a better understanding of the savagery of those murders, I'm angry that there's some sick bastard out there who may very well get away with this. Secondly, I empathize with Sheriff Sills. If there's anything else he could possibly do, I don't have any idea what that would be. He left literally no stone unturned. There's a lot of things that he did in this case that if it were my case, I might not have thought to do, but he had the presence of mind to do them. Some things about this investigation were purposely left out of the podcast. But let me just say this. If I ever turn up missing or murdered, he would be the person that I would want investigating my case. Thirdly, here's what I think I know with a high degree of confidence. This was not random. This was not done by a professional. This was not done by the mob. I agree with the sheriff that Mr. Derman's head was likely removed to hide or to destroy some type of evidence. I do believe a gun was involved, and so does the sheriff. None of the Dermans' children had any role in this. You have to keep in mind that they've been cleared. They cooperated with the investigation. You have to understand that whoever did this was not familiar with the inside of the Dermans' residence. So, assuming that what I just said is right, and I think it is, here's what I think did happen. I believe that two or more Adult locals arrived in the early morning by boat. Nobody saw any strange vehicles, but somebody did see an adult male in the Dermans' yard that Saturday. There were no unaccounted for boat rentals, and there were no reported boat thefts. So I do think it was locals with a boat. Whoever did this certainly had a dark personality side. It may have even been someone with a murder fantasy. I think that the person or persons responsible for these murders went to the Dermans' house because they wanted to extort Mr. Derman. After all, Mr. Derman was perceived, at least, to have access to some cash. That raises the question of, how are you going to extort Mr. Derman? And that's where Mrs. Derman comes in. I believe that she was going to be abducted for ransom, but that Mr. Derman tried to fight, physically fight, to prevent that abduction, and then the whole plan fell apart. 
that would account for Mr. Derman's apparent defensive wound to his hand. Remember, she was killed with a blunt object, a hammer or something similar to it. And I think he was shot. He may have also been beaten, but I do think he was shot. And then, while the body of Mrs. Derman was being bound and weighted down and sunk to the bottom of the lake, I think someone or someones remained behind at the home to decapitate Mr. Derman's body. And then, after Mrs. Derman was disposed of in the lake, whoever was in that boat returned to the Derman residence, and then everyone, along with Mr. Derman's head, left by boat. Given the evidence that I've seen with my own eyes, and based on my discussions with the sheriff and others, that's the most plausible explanation I can think of. And here's the worst of it. If I'm right, there's a killer or killers on the loose right now who live on or near Lake Oconee. And unless somebody who knows something makes that one phone call, they may very well get away with it, or even worse, they may do it again. So before Sworn moves on to other issues and other cases, I wanted to look into one other question that's been on my mind. And that question is, what kind of person would do something like this? What sort of twisted psychology might be involved here? For those of you who listen to our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, you're no doubt familiar with Dr. Maurice Godwin. I reached out to Maurice to talk to him about this very question. I mean, the crime itself is very unusual. You know, after reading everything that I could, I think that one of the main motives behind this was retribution. I mean, anytime that you're in business and making that kind of money, there's always a chance that you've crossed someone, but you don't ever know it. It's definitely somebody with a criminal history. You will likely find them in the burglary files. There's no doubt about that. Likely that the uh, motive was retribution and that I do not believe that the, the head was taken for shock value. I don't believe that the head was taken for uh, a trophy or anything like that. It was personal and the head was taken to show that they meant business there. And I think it was the ultimate revenge, the ultimate retribution. And I think that that's exactly what it was. This is what I call a cognitive object individual. Their cognitive awareness during the crime that anything about leaving evidence, they're very forensically aware. But the object part is how they see the victim. Rather than seeing the victim as a vehicle to vent their rage and anger on, they saw the victim as an object, just a, a lifeless thing, sort of like a mannequin. And so when you see something, a person like that as an object, then you don't have any kind of repercussions, psychological guilt or anything like that. When you do something like removing the head, they have this, a sociopath tendencies of uh, no remorse, no empathy, no conscience. They have no empathy. They cannot empathize that, like, for example, other people cry or other people hurt and have feelings, 
they don't have any relationship to that. But uh, this person here saw these people as nothing but objects, a lifeless mannequin, and that's all they did. And, and removing that head, doing what they did to his wife, was just like going to get a hamburger. When you step into someone's house, and uh, especially a house that big and stuff, uh, and you've never really done that before, you are out to make mistakes. But if you've been in people's houses illegally breaking in and stuff like that, and you've done it on a regular basis and stuff, you're comfortable at, like you're at home. So you're very more forensically aware. These people were very forensically aware. These are the type of people who see people as objects, objects to control, objects to treat like a, uh, a, a lifeless thing, a, a mannequin. That's exactly how they saw these people here. These are the type of people that will not talk about this. So it's going to be through investigative work that you're going to have to link them. It's not going to be that somebody said something to somebody else and, and, and talk, calls in a tip. Um, you're looking at somebody that's uh, in their late 30s, early 40s. Based on the type of crime it was, the age of the, uh, the victims, and the sophistication, the elaborate planning that they did with this, this was drawn out. They drew this out on paper. And they planned this out, and they pulled it off just like a military exercise. These people did exactly what they meant to do. They were planning to cut his head off before they ever stepped foot on his property. There's no doubt about it. The age, I mean, just considering the, doing this to a, r a real elderly couple, a, a man cutting his, uh, 88 years old and stuff, this was really personal. Somebody had hate Something went wrong in this guy's background that he didn't realize that was bad as it was. This was a random thing. Somebody had a personal revenge and they sought retribution against this person. I want to tell you all about a new show, Hellstrom, from the Hulu original horror series. Hellstrom was produced by Marvel Television and is based on characters from the Marvel comics. It's essentially the story of a very complicated family. The show follows Damon and Anna Hellstrom, the son and daughter of a mysterious and powerful serial killer, as they track down the worst of humanity, each with their own attitude and skills. It's the story of two broken children who were estranged and raised separately, becoming two very different people. All episodes of Hellstrom are streaming now only on Hulu. Good afternoon, Sheriff. Thanks for talking with me again. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We've learned a lot about the double murder of the Dermans. You know, last time we spoke and when we visited with you, we briefly covered the family members, but... Can you elaborate on how you eliminated family and close friends as suspects in this case? Yes, obviously we obtained cell phone records of the children. The estate of the Dermans passed only to their children, although there was one grandchild who did get a, a very small amount of money, but the three children 
inherited the estate. Obviously, we had their cell phone records, which included the tower sites that were being hit during the time of the crime. None of those tower sites were anywhere in the state of Georgia, much less near the German home. Obviously, that doesn't completely eliminate someone, but uh, we polygraphed all three of the children, and of course, they all passed the polygraphs. Nothing in the course of our investigation so far has revealed any sort of animosity or anything like that between the, their adult children and, and the victims. So uh, through a combination and the totality of all of that, we eliminated them. Now, you've been sheriff for, what, over 20 years now? And, of course, I wouldn't presume to know what you plan to do in the future, but if it just so happens that your retirement comes before that break in the case, how would that affect you personally if it happens that you retire and there's there's never any resolution to this case? First of all, let me say, I don't have any intentions of retiring anytime soon. And secondly, if I did retire, I certainly would like to, if that were to happen, I would not just turn over all these boxes and files. I'd like to sit down and explain everything I knew about the case. It's the only way that you could do that and do your duty before you retire. And even if I retired, I would certainly be available and willing to help in any way in my retirement. But let me stress again, I, just because I've been sure for over 20 years doesn't mean I'm ready to retire. What is the current situation of the reward that's available and what is required for someone to be eligible to receive that reward? I don't have the total. When I first solicited that reward, the FBI contributed. I had money pledged by various organizations. But when I solicited that money, I asked that they'd give me that money for a year. If we didn't use it, I'd give it back. And and many of the people who made those contributions did ask for the money back, and I distributed it back to them. I don't know what the total is right now. I presume the FBI still has 10000 available. I don't know how many thousand I have here, but that's for information that will lead us to an arrest of the person or persons responsible for perpetrating this crime. Since the last time we spoke about the Lake Oconee murder, Sheriff, you found yourself back in the national news with another double murder on your hands. Would you like to give our listeners some insight into that case? Well, unfortunately, last Tuesday here in Putnam County, a state prison bus was traveling through our county and two prisoners in the bus somehow got up into the driver's compartment and quite viciously murdered the two uh, corrections officers and got out of the bus, carjacked an individual who was a motorist who was simply passing by and then fled from the area, which quickly evolved into a nationwide manhunt that culminated a couple last Thursday evening up in Rutherford County, Tennessee near Murfreesboro, and obviously I was leading that manhunt. It was probably the biggest manhunt that drew the most attention. The desperate manhunt going nationwide tonight. Two inmates in Georgia overpowering their guards on a prison bus, killing them using the officer's own weapons. The inmates then getting away in a stolen vehicle they carjacked. 
officials now warning they are armed and dangerous. This is 43-year-old Donnie Rowe and 24-year-old Ricky DeBose. Uh, they were on their way from one prison to another, there they are, when investigators say that they busted out of the locked part of that bus. Now they overpowered two guards, stole their weapons, and killed them both in front of 31 other inmates. Georgia authorities tonight tell us that the inmates who got away after murdering two prison guards are out running around with 40 caliber Glocks and could kill again. A terrible, sudden act of violence launching a statewide manhunt for Donnie Rowe and Ricky DeBose. Considered armed and dangerous, there is a $60,000 reward tonight for their capture on the run now for 16 plus hours. Putnam County police are desperately searching for these two fugitives, 43-year-old Donnie Rowe and 24-year-old Ricky DuBose. Both are career criminals who are serving hard time, and police say one of them is a member of the Ghost Face Gangsters, a white supremacist prison gang. There's a death on the scene, assuming that the shooters have escaped. All arms of law enforcement are now gathered here. They are doing searches. They continue even though it is dark. The worry here is to find those two convicts before they hurt anyone else. The Meantime, officers from all jurisdictions are checking out each and every reported sighting of the escapees and telling residents be on the lookout for this green Honda Civic and these two faces. The bus ride from where they escaped early this morning was unscheduled and was moving 33 inmates from one prison to another. Police say the two men broke through a locked barrier and back and attacked prison transfer sergeants Christopher Monica and Curtis Ballou. Both leave behind devastated families tonight. They need to surrender before we find them. I saw two brutally murdered Christians. That's what I saw. I have their blood on my shoes. Let's imagine a world where no one ever cuts corners. Potato chip bags are filled to the top or that car in front of you at the stoplight notices when it turns green. Well, a place like this exists, where square pizzas are placed into square boxes and wings come in jumbo sides. We're talking about Lido Pizza, with an all-new online ordering website for easy ordering. Lido Pizza is square because Lido Pizza never cuts corners. Check it out at LidoPizza.com. On June 13th, just one day before the release of Sworn, these two convicted armed robbers allegedly shot and killed two Georgia corrections officers during a prison transport. And they happened to have done this in Putnam County. Sheriff Sills, of course, was one of the first arriving officers and led a nationwide manhunt that wound up in Tennessee following a series of carjackings, car thefts, a breaking and entering, a home invasion, and finally ending in Tennessee following a high-speed police chase where they actually shot at the deputies with guns that were stolen from the murder victims in Georgia. Sheriff Sills said that this high-speed chase ended in Moore County, Tennessee, 75 miles southeast of Nashville. Just a few days later, Sheriff Sills went personally to pick them up and bring them back to Georgia, where they now face capital murder charges and are facing the death penalty. A lot of people are asking about DNA or the lack of DNA. Was there ever any DNA of any type that was collected that could not have been identified? Every piece of tangible evidence that was there or any place that we thought there would be, we submitted that to the lab. I won't elaborate on what results may or may not have resulted from their testing. 
there's a lot of people that are asking about a deceased child of the Dermans that had been murdered some years prior to this. Was that episode looked at, and do you think there's any connection? Yes, obviously, uh, when we heard that they had a son who had been murdered, we obviously looked at that immediately, almost. The Dermans moved here, had been living here for 14 years. They left the metro Atlanta area in 2000, shortly after their son was murdered. Their son was not a drug trafficker. He was not in any cartel. He was none of the above. Their son, unfortunately, was like so many people that I've dealt with over the years. They had this one son who was a drug addict. And as many people know, they start doing anything to get their drugs. You know, this, this was a typical scenario where you know, he'd stolen from his parents and did thefts and eventually actually did a robbery one time up in New York, and he was in and out of rehab and things like that. And on his birthday in the year 2000, he and another individual went over in west side of Atlanta, kind of over near the area they call the Bluff today, which is well-known drug area in the city of Atlanta. And he and a, and a friend went over there to buy some drugs. I highly suspect he probably was using some money that he'd gotten for his birthday. And unfortunately, they pulled up on the street to a drug dealer over there, and that individual apparently was not selling that day. That individual was robbing and shot both of them in their car. The Nerman son died there at the scene. The other individual lived, and someone was arrested, prosecuted, tried for murder, and is presently in prison for the murder of the Durban boy and the aggravated assault of the other person. That person survived, of course. You know, the Germans didn't go to the trial. We, a lot of people told us that there was getting ready to be a parole hearing. Absolutely untrue. People told us that the Germans had written letters to the parole board. Did not happen. There certainly seems to be no nexus between his murder and, and his parents' murder. We saw the guard shack at the entrance to their subdivision. At the time, it did not have gates, but was it a situation in... 2014, where if you lived there and you were expecting a guest or a visitor, that you would have to call the guard shack, call security, and leave their name at the front? Yes, there wasn't a bar there as there is now, the, or the scanner. If you were a member of Reynolds or had a work permit, in short, if you had a Reynolds sticker for your windshield issued to you, you were waved through. If not, the procedure was that someone had to call ahead to allow you admittance, of course unless you were said you were going to the clubhouse for dinner or something like that, and then you were way through at that time. Obviously, we checked those records. Needless to say, at least at this point in time, that did not glean anything that was beneficial to us. To your knowledge, were they expecting any visitors or any contractors or anybody like that to come to their home? Not to my knowledge, but, you know, contractors went in and out of there constantly. A contractor with a appropriate documentation was way through. Most people who have listened to the podcast and have subsequently gone back and looked over other publicly available information, the overwhelming theory seems to be that whoever did this came and left by boat. Do you believe that to be the case? Not necessarily. I don't. They certainly could have. I will say this, Mrs. Nerman's body, because of where it was and where we recovered it, 
over on the Greene County side of the lake in an uninhabited area that was not accessible by vehicle. That in combination with the weights being on our body, the hydraulics of the water movement itself, all of those factors, and we consulted with Georgia Power about water flow, hydraulic experts at the University of Georgia, made us comfortable knowing that her body had not moved very far once it began to ascend from the bottom. Therefore, we are confident that her body was disposed of by boat, and obviously she could have been transported, and all of this could have happened by water, but it also could have happened by ground transportation, or it could have happened by boat. What about the weather between the Saturday when you believe they were murdered and the Tuesday when they were found? Was there any weather activity that could have interfered with any forensic evidence that may be present outside the home? No, I I can't remember right now. Obviously, we probably have that documented, but there was nothing evident outside. It was, for instance, it was very clear from where blood was inside in regards to the decapitation procedure itself that it the garage doors were shut at the time. That was a very clear from physical evidence at the scene. The newspapers and things like that had not been collected for a couple of days. They were dry. There, to my knowledge, there had been no extensive rain or anything from the time of the murder until the time we discovered Mr. Nerman's body. How do you search an entire exterior or front yard and backyard of this residence for this particular case uh, we even searched beyond that you take a hundred deputy sheriffs and you put them arm to arm and you walk through the woods sheriff are you still making yourself available to investigate any new leads that may come up in this case absolutely phil and, and the best example like you know we got some information doesn't look like there's going to be anything to it last friday right when i was still very much in the aftermath of this most recent double murder here in this county. And obviously I stopped what I was doing and responded to that and assigned some some people to do some things based on that information. And that was Friday. That looked like it's going to be anything to it. But I mentioned that only to assure everyone that we're still working on this case and are going to continue to work on it and continue to work on it aggressively if and as any information comes forward. So if anybody has any information that they think could be helpful, what's the best way for them to get that information to you? Contact my office at 706-485-8557 or email me at sheriffseals at putnamcountysheriff.org or one or the other. There's obviously a tip line on our website, which is putnamcountysheriff.org. And I promise you, we're going to look into it and respond to it, and more than likely, I will be responding to it personally. Sworn is produced by Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta. Sworn is mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. If you're in the market for podcast production, go to ResonateRecordings.com to get your first episode produced for free. I'd personally like to say thank you to Sheriff Sills for his time, and I wish him the best of luck moving forward. 
I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. We're currently working on several new cases for upcoming episodes of Sworn. Each month, we will bring you a new multi-part miniseries exposing the untold stories and the hard truths behind major cases, wrongful convictions, controversial legislation, and much, much more. Stay up to date and subscribe to Sworn Now on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please rate and review Sworn. It helps us move up in the charts and brings in new listeners. Stay tuned right here in the coming weeks for a sneak peek of what's coming next month on Sworn. And don't forget, our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, is approaching its season one finale with only three main episodes left. Subscribe and tune in to Up and Vanished every Monday. Thanks for listening, guys. See you soon. Quibi is a new streaming service with fresh original stories that unfold in minutes. With over 100 spooky new episodes for Halloween, they've got the blood-curdling screams to last you every day this October. Their Quick Bites of Fright collection is made for our fans. They've got classic murder mysteries, but also have fun new concepts that explore true crime in the worlds of home renovation and even fashion. Download Quibi in the App Store today to get streaming. That's Quibi, spelled Q-U-I-B-I.